On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Arizona is our next stop on the state of murder road trip. This stop, we will meet a couple of lady killers, actual ladies that kill. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Welcome to sunny Arizona. We were in Alaska last week in what could be more opposite climate-wise than here. Let's put on our sunscreen and meet a couple of gals from the Grand Canyon State. First up is Eva Dugan. First up is Eva Dugan. Eva was convicted of killing one man, but possibly killed a total of six. Born in 1878, Eva didn't have a very good childhood and never learned much more than basic skills. She got married at age 16 and had two children. Her husband would abandon her and the children. Eva would eventually end up in, guess where? Juneau, Alaska. Deja vu, anyone? She ended up there because of the Klondike Gold Rush. Does that also sound familiar? If you were paying attention last week, that's how Robert Stroud and his lady Kitty ended up in Juneau and at about the same time. We aren't going to hang out in the last frontier for very long, While in Alaska, Eva was a cabaret singer, and in one account I read, she was a prostitute, which Kitty O'Brien from last week's episode also was. Either way, when she left Alaska, she ended up in Pima County, Arizona. There, instead of singing and dancing, she got a job in January of 1927 as a housekeeper for an aging chicken farmer named Andrew Mathis. Mathis was rich, but also cranky, demanding, and a bit of a cheapskate. He and Eva didn't get along very well, and at one point, Mr. Mathis was convinced that Eva had tried to poison him. A friend of Andrew Mathis was present when Eva was told she was fired and to leave the ranch and not ever come back. In one place I read, she was employed at the ranch for two weeks, but another said two months. Either way, it was not very long. A few days after that friend heard Andrew fire Eva, he and some other neighbors reported Andrew missing. And the man himself wasn't the only things missing. Andrew's Dodge Coupe and a few of his belongings, like a cash box he kept at home, were also gone. A search was conducted at the ranch, and while they didn't find Andrew Mathis, they found a burnt ear trumpet in a stove in the front part of the house. There were also some discarded clothes, little pieces of automobile equipment laying around, including a cover for the Dodge that had a few bloodstains on it. Police pretty much figure that Andrew was dead but they aren't going to stop looking for him anyway. Pima County Sheriff James McDonald was not only trying to find Andrew, he was trying to track down Eva. He found out that Eva's father was in California and Eva's daughter was in White Plains, New York. When they were contacted, neither of them had heard from her in quite a few years. Come to find out, Eva had been married five times, and oddly, all of those husbands disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Hence why I said she might be responsible for up to six murders. In talking to neighbors, it comes out that Eva had approached some of them and was trying to get them to buy some of Andrew's stuff. Right after this, she up and vanished. It appears that Eva sold Andrew's Dodge in Kansas City, Missouri, and she did this by posing as his wife and using the excuse that she needed the money to pay for a surgery that Andrew needed. 
she got $600 for the Dodge. The authorities are looking for Eva, and it was a postal worker that finally located her. I'm imagining those wanted posters in the post office, but I'm guessing in the 1920s they were maybe hand-drawn. I don't know. I suppose I could Google it, but I don't feel like it, so let's just pretend. This postal worker was in White Plains, New York, which is where her daughter lived. The worker got their hands on a card that Eva was sending out to her dad in California. On March 4th, 1927, Eva was arrested and sent back to Arizona. She sent back to face charges of car theft because no one has found Andrew or Andrew's body. She gets sent to jail, and nine months into her sentence, something happens. A guy from Oklahoma, J.F. Nash, is camping on land that was owned by Andrew Mathis, and while pitching his tent, he uncovers a shallow grave with a decomposing body in it. The remains are confirmed to be that of Andrew. Eva is charged with his murder, and even though all they have is circumstantial evidence, the prosecutors are able to convince the jury that Eva had killed Andrew Mathis with an axe and that she was assisted in this crime by a boy referred to as Jack, who was reported to be a mysterious teenage drifter who she fled with after the murder. So who is Jack and how did this even come up? Well, this is how. When authorities confronted Eva with the fact that they'd found Andrew's body, she denied it and even went on to say that if she'd have buried him, she'd have buried him deep enough that he would not have been found. Probably not a smart thing to say, and it certainly didn't impress police. Eventually, Eva tells another story. She claimed she'd met a young fellow by the name of Jack, no last name. She met him outside of a restaurant, and the two got to talking. Eva suggested that Jack could probably get a job at the Mathis Ranch, which he did. But Jack's first day on the job did not go very well. Cranky Andrew got mad when Jack failed to successfully milk the cow he was told to milk. Supposedly, Mathis said, if you can't milk a cow, what the hell are you good for? Mathis followed this up by hitting Jack. Jack then hit Andrew Mathis back. The older man fell down and never got back up. Considering the police believe Andrew was killed with an axe, what would be the explanation for that? Jack knocked Andrew down and he landed on an axe? Anyway, Eva went on to say that she and Jack had tried to help Andrew, but couldn't. She also said that she wanted to go get help, but Jack wouldn't let her. Jack said that if she didn't help him get rid of Andrew's body, he would take off and Eva would be the only person they could blame it on. At some point after disposing of the body, Eva heads east and on the way she drops Jack off in Kansas City on her way to New York. Cops initially don't buy it. No one else seems to have seen this mysterious Jack. And yet, while this is going on with Eva, there is a young man out in L.A. who is busy confessing to a brutal child slaying. This young man was Edward Hickman, a.k.a. the Fox, who had kidnapped, murdered, and dismembered 12-year-old Marion Parker. Hickman claimed to have been in Phoenix for a few days, and this was right around the time Andrew Mathis was killed. And coincidentally, or not, Hickman claimed to have been in Kansas City during the time frame that Eva says she dropped him off. They show Eva a picture of Hickman, and she says that she thinks that is the Jack she met, but she wasn't 100% sure. Arizona authorities are now sort of believing that maybe Hickman really was involved, but the cops out in Los Angeles are not about to let anyone else have a piece of their child killer. They wanted him all to themselves, and they succeeded. 
Hickman was never charged for the murder of Andrew Mathis, and store this in your brain for about 10 seconds, Edward Hickman was sentenced to execution and hanged on October 19, 1928. Eva goes on trial, and after a pretty brief one, she is convicted and sentenced to death. Method of execution? To be hanged, the same as Edward Hickman. Eva is going to be the first woman to be put to death by hanging. She would also go on to earn a couple of other distinctions. More on that in a minute. While she's in prison, she charges anyone from the press who interviews her a dollar for the privilege. She also embroideries hankies that she sells. Why this entrepreneurial ship, you might ask, while waiting to be executed? Because she wanted a nice coffin to be buried in. She also made herself a fancy beaded flapper slash jazz dress to be executed in. After thinking it through, she decided she'd be better off wearing a cheap dress so her fancy one wouldn't get messed up. She could always be buried in the nice one. Her attitude was definitely not what you'd expect, and she even earned the name Cheerful Eva, given to her by Time Magazine in a March 3rd, 1930 story they ran about her. The night before Eva was to be hanged, a rumor went around that she was going to kill herself before they could hang her. Quick search of her cell turned up a bottle of raw ammonia and some razor blades that she'd been hiding under the collar of her dress. These were obviously taken from her. In another account, I read that she actually handed them over willingly, saying that if she was going to die, it would be in the method that the law had decided. Eva asked for clemency, saying she was mentally ill, but that was denied, and at 5 a.m. on February 21st, 1930, they walked Eva to the gallows. I said earlier she was the first woman to be executed in Arizona, and her execution was also the first one in which they allowed women to be witnesses. Some places I read five women, others it was 20 women. Regardless, women were allowed for the first time to be witnesses at an execution. So now I've given you two distinctive things about Eva's execution, but there's one more, and it's a doozy. The night before she was to be executed, she was in her cell visiting with family and friends, and she seemed cheerful, even made some jokes. It seems she thought she was going to be spared and even said she thought the attorney general was headed her way to stop it. That, of course, didn't happen. They escorted her down the hall and through the courtyard the next morning, and Eva seemed to be in fairly good spirits. She reportedly was singing, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on my way. The warden was with her, Warden Wright, and he said to her, God bless you, Eva. And the last words spoken by Eva were, Goodbye, Daddy Wright. After that, she walked up the 13 steps in a composed manner. To a newspaper, Eva said to the guards beside her not to hold her arms so tight because she didn't want people to think she was afraid. Now, when they put the noose over her head, she did appear to sway a little bit. Supposedly, there were boards there to strap her to if she collapsed. They didn't end up needing them. They just strapped her legs as usual and, of course, put a hood over her head. I can't say I'm blaming her for swaying. I think any of us would. She was asked then if she had any final words, to which she simply shook her head, no. Let's do a quick peek at the method of hanging. A man named William Marwood, who was a hangman by trade over in England, did a little figuring. And in 1874, he decided that if you could break the accused's neck, they would die much quicker instead of the slow strangulation that occurs by using a standard rope for everyone. 
He found out that if you took into consideration a person's age and weight and other physical factors to determine the length of the rope that should be used, his initial ideas and calculations were improved upon by later hangmen and became the standard method. But it seems Mr. Marwood's theories weren't taken seriously in America until a lot later. With that in mind, let's head back to the gallows where Eva now waits. They sprung the trap door at 5.11 a.m. and Eva dropped, but the rope was too long and Eva's neck was a bit too flabby. When she hit the end of the rope, it was with such force that it decapitated her. Rumor has it her head ended up rolling and came to rest at the feet of some of the witnesses, some of them women. There was passing out even by some of the men. Because of this grisly mishap, Arizona decided to replace the gallows with the gas chamber in 1934. This means that Eva was not only the first woman executed, but the last person to ever be hanged in Arizona. Eva was buried in her beaded silk dress. Next up is Cynthia Kaufman. She was born in 1962 to a St. Louis businessman and his wife and raised in a devout Catholic home. Because of this, when she turned up pregnant at 17, her upbringing sent her into a marriage that was pretty much doomed. I really wanted to get some more info on Cynthia's background, but it isn't easily found. There is a book on Cynthia and her partner, James Marlowe, but it's out of print and not available on Kindle or Scribd. So I have to just go with the flow and you'll have to forgive me for the lack of details about Cynthia prior to the murders she took part in. I'll give you what I managed to find. According to Cynthia herself, who will later give this version to police, her dad took off when she was six, and she says her mom tried to give her and her siblings away, whatever that means. She blames her father for leaving, and the reasons that she went after the attention of the wrong kinds of men in the future was because of him leaving. She said to get attention, she'd get into trouble. She spent a few years struggling to support her son, Josh, by working at a carburetor factory. Then she up and decides that along with a girlfriend, she will leave her son behind and start over in Arizona. According to Cynthia, she planned to have her son come to be with her once she was established. So Cynthia leaves home with just her car and what she's wearing. Eventually, she will end up in Arizona where she gets a job as a waitress. A few weeks after arriving in Arizona, she moves in with a local fellow, Doug Huntley. From what I read, Cynthia is a woman that cannot be without a man for very long, so it didn't take her long to find one when she got into Arizona. In the fall of 1985, she and Doug get evicted from their apartment, mostly due to complaints from other tenants about drunken all-nighters going on at Cynthia and Doug's place. In May of 86, Cynthia and Doug are stopped for running a stop sign in Barstow, California. In the car, the police find a loaded gun and some meth amphetamine in her purse. For whatever reason, the police release Cynthia, but Doug is sentenced to six weeks in the county jail. During her visits to her boyfriend is when she meets James Gregory Marlowe, who happened to be a cellmate to Doug. Marlowe was doing time for stealing his sixth wife's car. Yes, I said sixth. Marlowe was born in 1957 and had pretty much been a thief since he was 10 years old. He got sent to Folsom Prison in 1980 for several home invasions and for committing robbery using a knife. He did three years, and while at Folsom, he had garnered himself a reputation, mostly because of the tattoos he had. Tattoos of the neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood variety. 
The nickname he got was the Folsom Wolf. It sort of seems like Cynthia fell for James pretty much at first glance, like she forgot that she was there to visit her boyfriend. And it also sort of seems that Marlo had pretty much the same reaction to Cynthia. Both Doug and Marlo get out at some point, and the three of them, Cynthia, Doug, and James Marlowe, seem to be kind of friendly. At some point, Doug ends up back in jail. Marlowe shows up one day at Cynthia's door and tells her that Doug has been sent to another jail. Not to be without a man, Cynthia attaches herself to James Marlowe, and the pair take off together. Marlowe had some family in the border south, and that's where they headed, mooching off of various relatives and stealing from those same relatives when they got fed up with the duo and kicked them out. Eventually, all of his relatives are wise to the tricks and either throw a little cash at them or basically tell them to buzz off and get gone. Eventually, Cynthia and Marlowe have to resort to living in the woods, where Cynthia ends up with a wicked case of head lice, and James Marlowe gets infested with biting chiggers and has to wash himself in kerosene to get rid of them. They're chilling in various places, shooting up meth and other fun stuff. On July 26, 1986, Cynthia and Marlowe rob a home in Whitley County, Kentucky, where they loot some cash, jewelry, and a shotgun. They also shoot a drug dealer because why not? Oh, well, because someone paid them five grand to do it. A few days later, they make it to Tennessee where they get married, kind of. It is a biker wedding, so I guess they're sitting on top of a motorcycle, not real official. Cynthia commemorates the wedding by getting one of her butt cheeks tattooed with, I belong to the Folsom Wolf. How romantic. After the wedding, they mosey on back west looking for their next target. Now, apparently Marlo has a temper and will often beat Cynthia up. At some point, he cuts off all her hair. In fact, when they are eventually arrested, Cynthia's hair is about the length of a crew cut. Sandra Neary, age 32, left her home in Costa Mesa, California in the evening on October 11th. She was headed to the ATM to get some cash. Sandra never returned home. Police found her car in a parking lot. On October 24th, two weeks later, some hikers in Riverside County find her strangled, decomposed body. I want to point out that I can't find anywhere that the pair were charged with Neary's murder, but she's listed as one of the victims, so I wanted to include her. 17 days after Sandra disappeared, 35-year-old Pamela Simmons was reported missing in Bullhead City, Arizona. Not too far from police headquarters, her abandoned car is found. Detectives suspect Pamela had been abducted while trying to use an ATM that was near the curb. Now, you notice two weeks earlier, they're in California. Now they're in Arizona. Well, when November 7th comes around, they're back in California. Ten days after Pamela vanished, another woman disappears in Redlands, California. Karina Novas had been taken in broad daylight at a mall. Apparently, Cynthia and Marlo walked up to Karina and asked her for a ride. Then at gunpoint, they take Karina to a friend of Marlo's where they handcuff and gag her and sexually assault her. They then kill her by strangulation. Three days after Karina disappears, the couple are riding around in Karina's Honda and they end up on the Orange County coast where they use Karina's bank and credit cards to support themselves while they look for another victim. And they find one. Linnell Murray, 19 years old, bears a striking resemblance to Karina Novis. Linnell is coming out of the dry cleaning shop where she worked and Cynthia alone approaches her. 
Not sure the sequence of events, but eventually Marlo ends up in the picture. The killer couple robs the business of cash and clothes, then forces Linnell into Karina's stolen Honda. They drive her to a motel where they rape, beat, blindfold, and then strangle her with a towel. She was reported missing by her boyfriend when she didn't keep a date with him on the 12th. Linnell was a psychology student at the time of her disappearance. Her boyfriend found her car at the dry cleaning shop where she worked. Linnell's body is found face down in a tub full of water by a maid at the Huntington Beach Inn. Meanwhile, after wiping the car clean of fingerprints, or so they think, Cynthia and Marlo abandon Karina's Honda in the Running Springs community in the San Bernardino Mountains. As police are going over the scene where Linnell was found, they see obvious evidence of the sexual assault. Police are probably pretty frantic at this point, hoping for a break, and they get it. A checkbook is found in a trash dumpster in Laguna Niguel. The checkbook was inside of a takeout bag, and that checkbook belonged to Karina Novis. Want to know what else was in that bag? Papers that have Cynthia Kaufman and James Marlowe's names on it. As police are discovering this evidence, Cynthia and Marlowe are also tied to a San Bernardino motel where the motel manager found a piece of stationery on which someone had been practicing writing the name Linnell Murray. When police start looking into James Marlowe's criminal history, they pretty much figure they have their man, and they are getting a bonus criminal in Cynthia Kaufman. A statewide alert is then issued for Cynthia and Marlowe. On November 14th, a week after Karina was abducted, the police are called to come to a mountain lodge in Big Bear City, California. The owner recognized a pair of his guests. He believes those guests to be Cynthia Kaufman and James Marlowe. A 100-person team is dispatched to the lodge, but they find it empty. They start sweeping the surrounding woods, and at 3 p.m., they hit pay dirt. Cynthia and James are just strolling along a road in the mountains. They give up without incidents, and the clothes they are wearing when they're arrested happen to be clothes stolen from the dry cleaning shop where Linnell worked. At this point, they have Linnell's body, but not Karina's. But they do have Karina's checkbook. It took just a few hours after they are taken into custody for Cynthia to lead officers to a Fontana vineyard where the strangled and sodomized body of Karina Novas is found in a shallow grave. On November 17th, Cynthia Simmons and James Marlowe are formally charged with murder. Homicide investigators report to the press that the fingerprints of both suspects are inside of Karina's car, as well as on a typewriter at a pawn shop where Cynthia had pawned it. But the typewriter didn't belong to Karina or Linnell. It was tied back to Pamela Simmons, who had disappeared in Arizona while trying to use an ATM. Almost three years would go by before the two killers ended up in court in the months that passed, the two lovebirds had apparently fallen out of love and had started blaming each other for what had happened. Supposedly, at one point, a lawyer for Cynthia had asked her if she needed anything, and she pointed to her ass and said, find someone to help me lose this damn tattoo. Basically, Marlowe admits to killing the drug dealer in Kentucky and to killing Karina Novus and Linnell Murray but he also says that it was Cynthia's idea to kill Karina. Marlo said he just wanted to rob her and steal her car. 
He goes on to claim that the California murders were all Cynthia's idea. For Cynthia's part, she claims that she only went along with all of it because she was beaten, starved, and afraid. And yet, the police had witnesses, including a cellmate of Cynthia's, that claimed Cynthia took credit for Karina's murder. Unfortunately for her, she came across as smart and intelligent, much more so than James Marlowe. And the jurors, especially the female ones, didn't buy it. Both Cynthia and James got death for the murder of Karina Novis. For Linnell Murray, Cynthia got life without parole, and James got a second death sentence. In 2004, the California Supreme Court unanimously upheld the death sentence for Marlowe as well as for Cynthia. Just like Eva earned herself some distinctions as the first woman sentenced to hang, the first woman actually hanged, and the last person hanged, Cynthia also has a distinction. She is the longest serving woman on death row. She has been there 33 years. That's a pretty long death sentence if you ask me. Why bother handing out capital punishment if there's no intention of seeing it through? Just my opinion. And in case you're wondering, James is still alive too, or so the Google machine says. That will wrap up our Arizona stop. Hang tight for the final crumb. As a side note, I'm going to put out a half biscuit later this week. It won't be a pleasant topic, but it is an interesting one. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Crime Biscuit, or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. If you think about it, it's ironic that the gas chamber was what replaced hanging. Getting gassed is a slower, more excruciating process. I think I'd rather have my head pop off than suffocate to death. As for Cynthia and Marlo, give them the needle already. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.